Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my titans, warlords, enforcers, and of course, my lovely new listeners. Today, I bring you four Swedish tales told in an audiobook fashion. So, no background music, straight up raw me and you with a select number of sound effects as accents to flavor the tales. You know how I like to shake it up a bit, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts on these four tales in this style. And this particular set of tales are really unique. They have endings that I'm not used to, with topics and characters constructed in a way that I find is kind of unusual. You'll see what I mean by unusual, it's more in the way these stories are told and constructed narratively. So choices of dialogue, choices of location even, it's all a little bit different. I think you'll pick up on what I mean. So mates, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and pull that chair closer, and listen. The Fur Coat It was a cold winter that year. People shrank up in the chill and grew smaller, all except those who had furs. Judge Richard had a big fur coat. It almost belonged, moreover, to his official position, for he was managing director of a brand new company. His old friend, Dr. Hank, on the contrary, had no fur coat. He had instead a pretty wife and three children. Dr. Hank was thin and pale. Some people grow fat with marriage, others grow thin. Dr. Hank had grown thin and remained so on this particular Christmas Eve. I've had a bad year this year, said Dr. Hank to himself, as he was on his way to his old friend John Richard to borrow money. It was three o'clock of Christmas Eve, just the hour of the midday twilight. I had a very bad year. My health is fragile, not to say broken. My patients, on the contrary, have picked up. Almost the whole lot of them. I see them so seldom nowadays. Presumably I'm going to die soon. My wife thinks so too. I've seen it in her looks. In such a case, it would be desirable that the event should happen before the end of January, when the Curta Life Insurance Premium has to be paid. By the time he'd reached this point in the process of his thoughts, he found himself on the corner of Government and Harbour Street. As he was about to pass the street crossing in order to proceed down Government Street, he slipped on a smooth sleigh track and fell. And at the same moment, a sleigh drove up at full speed. The driver swore, and the horse instinctively turned aside. But Dr. Hank received a blow on the shoulder from one of the runners. And furthermore, a screw or nail or some similar projection caught his overcoat and tore a big rent in it. People gathered around him. A policeman helped him to his feet. A young girl brushed the snow off him. An old woman gesticulated over his torn overcoat in a way that indicated she would have liked to sew it up on the spot if she could. And a prince of the royal house, who happened to be going by, picked up his cap and set it on his head. So everything was all right again except the coat. Lord, what a sight you are, Gustav, said Judge Richard, when Hank came up to his office. Yes, I've been run over, answered Hank. That's just like you, said Richard, laughing good-humouredly. <laughs> but you can't go home like that. You may gladly have the loan of my fur coat, and I'll send a boy home after my Ulster. Thanks, 
said Dr. Hank. And after he had borrowed the hundred krona he needed, he added, We shall be glad to have you for dinner. Richard was a bachelor and was accustomed to spend Christmas Eve with Hank. On the way home, Hank was in a better humor than he had been for a long time. That's on account of the fur coat, he said to himself. If I had been smarter, I should have got myself a fur coat on credit long ago. It would have strengthened my self-esteem and raised me in the popular opinion. One can't pay such a small fee to a doctor in a fur coat as to a doctor in an ordinary overcoat with worn buttonholes. It's a bother that I didn't happen to think of that before. Now it's too late. He walked a stretch through King's Garden. It was dark already. It had begun to snow again, and the acquaintances he made did not recognize him. Who knows, though, whether it was too late. Hank went on to himself, I'm not too old yet, and I may have been mistaken about the question of my health. I'm poor as a little fox in the woods, but so was John Richard not so long since. My wife has grown cold and unfriendly toward me in latter times. She would surely begin to love me afresh if I could earn more money and if I were dressed in furs. It has seemed to me that she cared more for John since he got himself a fur coat than she did before. She was certainly a bit sweet on him when she was a young girl too. But he never courted her. On the contrary, he said to her and to everybody that she wouldn't dare to marry on less than ten thousand a year. But I dared, and Ellen was a poor girl who wanted to marry. I don't believe she was so much in love with me that I should have been able to seduce her if I'd wished to. But I didn't want to either. How could I have dreamed of that sort of love? I haven't thought of that since I was sixteen and saw Faust the first time at the opera with Arnson. I'm sure, though, she was fond of me when we were first married. One can't be mistaken about such a thing as that. Why couldn't she be again? In the first days after our marriage, she was always said spiteful things to John whenever they met. But then he built up a company, invited us often to the theatre, and got himself a fur coat. And so naturally in time, my wife grew tired of saying spiteful things to him. Hank had still several errands to do before dinner. It was already half past five when he came home laden with parcels. He felt very tender in his left shoulder, otherwise there was nothing that reminded him of this mishap in the afternoon except the fur coat. It'll be fun to see what my wife will do when she sees me in a fur coat, said Dr. Hank to himself. The hall was quite dark. The lamp was never lighted unless visitors were expected. I hear her in the parlor now, thought Dr. Hank. She walks as lightly as a little bird. It's remarkable that I still get warm around the heart every time I hear her step in the next room. Dr. Hank was right in his supposition that his wife would give him a more loving reception when he had on a fur coat than she was otherwise wont to do. She stole up close to him in the darkest corner of the hall, twined her arms about his neck, and kissed him warmly and intensively. Then she borrowed her head into the collar of his fur and whispered, Gustav isn't home yet. Yes, answered Dr. Hank in a voice that trembled slightly, while he caressed her hair with both hands. Yes, he he's home. A big fire flamed in Dr. Hank's workroom. Whiskey and water stood on the table. Judge Richard lay stretched out in a large leather easy chair and smoked a cigar. Dr. Hank sat huddled in a corner on the sofa. 
The door was open on the hall, where Mrs. Hank and the children were busy lighting the Christmas tree. Dinner had been very quiet. Only the children had twittered and prattled to one another and been happy. You're not saying anything, old fellow, said Richard. Is it that you're sitting worrying over your torn overcoat? No, answered Hank. It's rather over the fur coat. There was a few minutes silence before he continued. I'm thinking of something else, too. I'm sitting, thinking that this is the last Christmas we shall celebrate together. I'm a doctor, and I know I have not many days left. I know it now with full certainty. I want, therefore, to thank you for all the kindness you've shown me and my wife in these last times. Oh, you're mistaken, muttered Richard, looking away. No, replied Hank. I'm not mistaken, and I want to also thank you for lending me your fur coat. It has given me the last seconds of happiness I have known in my life. The Blue Anchor There was dancing in the saloon, but in the darkened smoking room sat several men who did not dance. The younger ones had white flowers in their buttonholes, the older ones had decorations. In the corner of a sofa sat a man a little apart from the others. He sat very silent and smiled, as at a happy dream. His face was brown, but his forehead was white, his frock coat was as correct as anyone else's, and he also had a white flower in his buttonhole, but his left hand, which hung over the arm of the sofa, was tattooed with a blue anchor. As a matter of fact, it was not a ball. There had merely been a dinner, and afterwards there was dancing. A man with a decoration was standing in front of him. You don't dance, Mr. Fant? He inquired. Fant replied, I've just been dancing with Miss Gavel. But as he said this, he felt that he blushed. Why should he have added, with Miss Gabble? It was surely a matter of indifference with whom he had danced. Because he believed he had said something stupid, he was annoyed with the man to whom he had said it, and set to staring at his decoration without saying anything. Since this was a bogus, foreign decoration of the worst sort, the man grew embarrassed, coughed dryly, and passed on. Fant remained seated and stared into a mirror which faced him on an oblique wall. But it was not himself that he saw in the mirror. It was the flooding light of the dancing hall and the sinuous lines of the women. They seemed to move silently in time with the music. Look at their red lips. Look at their white curves of their arms. There she was again. For the third time she glided past across the mirror. It was her cousin she was dancing with. A boy, lately a student. Ah, <sighs> well. No. He could not sit still. He could not look on any more. It surely signified nothing that a boy danced with his own cousin. But he could not look on. He rose and went out of the room. Someone asked, Who is this, Mr. Fant? He has invented something, a gas burner, I believe. He is already on the way to make a fortune. But do you see? Said the man with the foreign order. Did you see that he has a blue anchor tattooed on one hand? They suddenly burst into guffaws. 
He sauntered back and forth through the rooms. He went out into the corridor. A couple of knights of Vasa were sitting on the wood box talking about business, while they gesticulated with two big cigars, on which they had left the labels. They grew silent as he passed. He came into a greenish room that was half dark. From the roof of a narrow cord hung a single electric light, its glow shaded by blue and green fringes. On a dressing table with a marble top, an old Chinese mandarin of porcelain sat sleeping on his crossed legs. How strangely far off the music sounded, as if from underneath. He set the mandarin's head in motion with a little punch of his little finger. Two mirrors repeated in unending succession the pale and lethargic nods of the yellow head. Now it was quiet. The music. All at once she stood there, in the middle of the room. He had not heard her enter. She held out both hands to him. He took them and drew her to him for a kiss. But she freed herself, almost immediately. Somebody's coming, she said. They listened. Voices approached and moved away again. When all was quiet around them, he pressed her to him in a long kiss. And he thought while she kissed him, This is life. This is eternity. Far away in the green darkness nodded the pale head of the Mandarin. No one kisses like you, he muttered. Many kiss like you, she responded smiling. He thought to himself, She's smiling so that I shall know she's jesting, and that she has never kissed anyone else. While he caressed her two small hands between his, he noticed that she was looking at his left hand. You are looking at the anchor, he said. It's true that it is not handsome, and it won't come off. She took his hand and surveyed inquisitively the blue dots that formed an anchor, but she said nothing. It was in Hamburg. That was done, he said. I was a ship's boy on a vessel. We had come ashore and gone to a tavern by the harbour. I remember it all so well. The fog, the many masts in the harbour, and the smell of the grease. Raising his voice slightly. My comrades were tattooed on the hands, arms, and body, and they thought I ought to have myself tattooed also. I couldn't refuse, or they would have thought I was afraid of the pain for it hurt a great deal. But I thought, too, it was stylish. I was hardly fourteen, you know. Are you tattooed on the body as well? She asked. Smiling and somewhat unwillingly, he answered. Yes, I have on the breast a ship and a bird, which is supposed to be an eagle, though it looks more like a rooster. She looked long into his eyes, then slowly raised his hand to her lips, and kissed the blue anchor. Years passed, and one day Richard Fant said to his wife as they were dressing to go out to dinner, Do you know, I think the blue anchor is beginning to fade. Perhaps it's on the way to vanish entirely. Oh, it's not as bad as that, she answered. In reality, her thoughts were in another direction. She was thinking of her cousin, Tom Gabble, who was an attaché at the embassy in Madrid. He had now been home for two months on a visit and had promised to come and fetch them so as to go together to the dinner. Hurry up, she said, so that Tom won't have to wait for you. I'm all ready, he replied. He had sat down in a corner in the shadow, fully dressed, 
She turned and scanned his attire. You've forgotten your decoration, she remarked. I don't want my decoration, he responded. But Richard, could you be so discourteous to Tom? Who got it for you? He went after his decoration. It was not one of the very worst, not an Order of Christus or a Nishan Iftikar. It was a medium good decoration, a quite nice decoration. He fastened it on the lapel of his coat with the feeling that perhaps he really needed it, seeing that he had a blue anchor on his left hand. There was a dance after the dinner, but Fant remained sitting in a sofa corner of the smoking room. By his side sat the man whom he had formerly annoyed by staring at his foreign decoration, but he was now a knight commander. They had become good friends and called each other by their first names when they said anything to each other. They merely sat at each other's corner of the sofa and smoked big cigars with labels and understood each other perfectly. The doctors had forbidden Fant to smoke strong cigars because he had a bad heart, but he had just lighted the third since dinner. In the mirror of the middle of the opposite wall, he saw the revolving of the dancers and the flood of light from the hall. He had often wondered how it was that they seemed to dance as though on felt or soft greensward, soundlessly. He understood now that it came from his seeing them in the mirror, because the picture struck him from another quarter than the clatter and the music. He did not connect them, and over the flooring reflected in the mirror the dance appeared to go without noise. Look at the girls' white dresses. Behold their panting bosoms. He recollected that he had once seen her, who was now his wife, float past, as they did, in a girl's plain white ball dress. She was differently clad now. See, there she was, sure enough, with him, her cousin. She remained standing a moment in the doorway, erect, slender, and delicate as always. She seemed as if quite naked under the stiff, variegated silk in which she had wrapped her body, and which was only held together by clasps at the shoulders and wrists and waists. They bent their heads together and whispered. No, he must move about a bit, stretch his legs a little. It is not good to sit still too long after a big dinner and smoke three black cigars. He lighted the fourth and began to saunter back and forth through the room. He went out into the corridor. Three young men with white flowers in their buttonholes sat on the wood box with cigarettes in holders and talked about women. But they became silent as he went past. He opened the door to the little green cabinet and went in. It was empty. He set the mandarin yellow head in motion with a push of his knuckle and passed on to the window. The window pane breathed frost and wintry chill. He blew on it till there was a peephole between the ice flowers, put his eye to the glass and looked out. The sky was dark and glittering with stars. Highest up stood the dipper with its handle aloft. It was late then. He could not force himself to leave the room, because he felt a bitter and devouring desire for his wife and the kiss of old times. The kiss under the blue-green light, from a pearl fringe on the single electric light, the kiss which the Mandarin had beheld in his nodding half-slumber. If she would only come now, precisely now, no one could kiss as she did, no one. He had kissed other women since she no longer loved him. 
but he had forgotten them all. He would not recognize them if he met them on the street. If she would only come. Yes. If she but came to meet the other, even then he would take her forced and treacherous kiss as a boon, even then. He listened. Whispering voices were audible outside the door, but they grew silent all at once, and remained so. He had a strange sensation at his heart. He felt that in a couple of seconds he would lie stretched on the carpet unconscious, but he held himself upright, and suddenly, he heard from the entry where the young men were smoking their cigarettes a very clear voice which said, Well, after all, it's only natural. One can't expect her to be in love with someone who has a blue anchor tattooed on his hand. The coffin stood in the middle of the room. The black-clad woman walked back and forth. No, he's not coming. When he finally did come, he said, Pardon me, beloved. I was delayed by someone who came to call. She nodded stiffly. She did not believe him, because he had not kissed her. When he felt that they had stood too long silent, he said, I must be off tomorrow. I've heard a telegram from the minister, but I swear to you that I'll come back. He added in a somewhat lowered voice, as if he did not wish that the dead man should hear. She comprehended that he was lying and that he never meant to see her again. And she nodded. Goodbye, she said, when he had gone. She went forward to the head of the coffin and looked at the dead man without thinking any further, for she was too weary. But as she stood there, she remembered suddenly that she had loved him. She had loved other men too, but it came to her now that she had loved this one most. At that thought, she felt the tears rise from deep down in her heart. She took his left hand, the one with the blue anchor, and wetted it with her kisses and her tears. The Kiss There was once a young girl and a very young man. They sat on a stone on a promontory that ran out into the lake, and the waves splashed at their feet. They sat silent, each wrapped in thought and watched the sun go down. He thought that he should very much like to kiss her. When he looked at her mouth, it occurred to him that this was just what it was meant for. He had to be sure, seeing girls prettier than she was, and he was really in love with someone else. But this other, he could surely never kiss, because she was an ideal, a star. And what availed the desire of the moth for the star? She thought that she should very much like to have him kiss her, so that she might have occasion to be downright angry with him and show how deeply she despised him. She would get up, pull her skirts tightly round her, give him a glance brimmed with icy contempt, and go off, erect and calm, without any unnecessary haste. But in order that he might not divine what she thought, she asked in a low, soft voice, Do you think there is another life after this? He thought it would be easier to kiss her if he said yes, but he could not remember for certain what might he have said on other occasions on the same subject, and he was afraid of contradicting himself. He therefore looked her deep in the eyes and answered, 
There are times when I think so. This answer pleased her extraordinarily, and she thought, at least I like his hair, and his forehead too. It's only a pity his nose is so ugly. And then, of course, he has no standing. He's just a student who was reading for his examinations. That was not the sort of bow to vex her friends with. He thought, now I can certainly kiss her. He was nevertheless terribly afraid. He had never before kissed a girl of good family, and he wondered if it might not be too dangerous. Her father was lying asleep in a hammock a little way off, and he was the mayor of the town. She thought, perhaps it will be better still if I give him a box on the ear when he kisses me. And she thought again, why doesn't he kiss me? Am I so ugly and disagreeable? She leaned forward over the water to see her reflection, but her image was broken by the splashing of the water. She thought again, I wonder how it will feel when he kisses me. As a matter of fact, she had only been kissed once, by a lieutenant after a ball at the town hotel. He had smelt so abominably of punch and cigars that she had felt but little flattered. Although, to be sure, he was a lieutenant, but otherwise she did not much care for his kiss. Furthermore, she hated him because he had not been attentive to her afterwards or indeed shown any interest in her at all. While they sat so, each engrossed in private thoughts, the sun went down and it grew dark. And he thought, seeing that she is still sitting with me, though the sun is gone and it has become dark, it may be that she wouldn't be so much object to my kissing her. Then he laid his arm softly around her neck. She had not expected this at all. She had imagined he would merely kiss her and nothing more. And with that, she would give him a box on the ear and go off like a princess. Now, she didn't know what she should do. She wanted, of course, to be angry with him. But at the same time, she didn't want to lose the kiss. She therefore sat quite still. Thereupon, he kissed her. It felt much more strange than she had supposed. She felt that she was growing pale and faint. She entirely forgot that she was to give him a box on the ear and that he was only a student reading for his examination. But he thought of a passage in a book by a religious physician on the sex life of women, which read, One must guard against letting the martial embrace come under the dominion of sensuality. And he thought that this must have been very difficult to guard against, if even a kiss could do so much. When the moon came up, they were still sitting there and kissing. She whispered into his ear, I loved you from the first hour I saw you. And he replied, There has never been anyone in the world for me but you. The Dream of Eternity while I was still very young, I believed with entire certainty that I had an immortal soul. I regarded this as a holy and precious gift, and was both happy and proud over it. I often said to myself, The life I am living is a dark and troubled dream. Sometime I shall awaken to another dream which stands closer to reality and has a deeper meaning than this. Out of that dream, I shall awaken to a third and afterwards to a fourth, and every new dream will stand nearer to the truth than the one before. This approaching toward truth constitutes the meaning of life, which is subtle and profound. With the joy of knowing that in my immortal soul I possessed a capital which could not be lost in play or distrained upon for debt, 
I carried on a dissipated life and squandered like a prince both what was mine and what was not mine. But one evening I found myself with some of my cronies in a large hall, which glittered with glit and electric light, while from its flooring rose the smell of decay. Two young girls with painted faces and an old woman whose wrinkles were filled with plaster while dancing there on a platform, accompanied by the wail of the orchestra. Cries of applause and the clink of broken glass. We watched the women, drank a great deal, and conversed on the immortality of the soul. It's foolish, said one of my comrades who was older than I. It's foolish to believe that it would be a blessing to have an immortal soul. Look at that old Haverdan dancing there, whose head and hands tremble if she stays still a moment. One sees directly that she is wicked and ugly and entirely worthless, and that she is getting more and more so every day. How ridiculous it would be to imagine that she had an immortal soul. But the case is just the same with you and me and all of us. What a mean joke it would be to give us immortality. The thing that I dislike most in what you say, I answered, is that you deny the immortality of the soul, but the fact you find a pleasure in denying it. Human beings are like children that play in a garden surrounded by a high wall. Time and again a door is opened in the wall and one of the children disappears through the door. People then tell them that it is taken to another garden, bigger and more beautiful than this, whereupon they listen, a moment in silence, and afterwards continue to play among the flowers. Assume now that one of the boys is more inquisitive than the others and climbs up the wall so as to see where his comrades go, and when he comes down again, tells the rest what he has seen, namely, that outside the gate sits a giant who devours the children when they are taken out, and they all have to be taken out through the gate in due turn. You are that boy, Martin, and I find it unspeakably ridiculous that you tell what you think you've seen, not in the spirit of despair, but as if you were proud and glad of knowing more than the rest. The younger of those girls is very pretty, replied Martin. It's dreadful to be annihilated, and it's also dreadful not to be able to be annihilated, remarked another of my friends. Martin continued this line of argument. Yes, one should be able to find a middle course, gird up your loins and go out to look for a midway degree between time and eternity. He who finds it may found a new religion, for he'll then have the most enticing bait that a fisher of men ever possessed. The orchestra stopped with a clash. The gold of the hall glittered more faintly, through the tobacco smoke and through the floorboards pressed continuously a smell of decay. The party broke up and we separated, each in his own direction. I wandered a long while back and forth on the streets. I came upon streets which I did not recognize and which I've never seen since. Remarkably desolate and empty streets, where the houses seemed to open their lines to give me space whithersoever I turned my step, and then to close up again behind my back. I did not know where I had got to, before all of a sudden I stood in front of my own door. It stood wide open. I went in through the door and up the stairs. At one of the stair windows I stopped and looked at the moon. I had not previously noticed that there was moonlight that evening. But I have never either before or after seen the moon look so. One could not say that it shone. It was ashen grey and pallid and unnaturally big.
I stood a long while and stared at yonder moon, despite the fact that I was dreadfully tired and longed to get to sleep. I lived in the third story, where I had gone up two flights, I thank God there was only one left. But as I came up this flight, it struck me that the corridor was not dark, as it had always used to be, but faintly lighted like the other corridors where the moon glimmered in through the stair windows. But there were only three flights of stairs in the house besides the attic stairs. For that reason, the uppermost corridor was always dark. The door of the attic is open, I said to myself. The light is coming from the attic stairway. It's unexcusable of the servants to leave the door of the attic open, for thieves might get up into the attic. But there was no attic door. There was only an ordinary stairway like the others. I had counted wrong then. I had still a flight to go up. But when I had mounted this flight and stood in the corridor, I had to control myself so as not to shriek aloud. For this corridor too was lit. Neither was there any attic door open, but a new stairway led up just as before. Through the stair window the moon glimmered in, and it was ashen grey and lustreless and unnaturally big. I rushed up the stairway. I could no longer think. I tottered up another and yet another. I did not count them any longer. I wanted to cry out. I wanted to wake that accursed house and see human beings around me. But my throat was constricted. Suddenly it occurred to me to try if I could read the names on the door plates. What kind of people could it be that lived in this Tower of Babel? The moonlight was too faint. I struck a match and held it close to a brass plate. I read there one of the names of my friends who was dead. Then the bonds of my tongue were loosed, and I shrieked, Help! 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 That cry was my salvation, for it waked me up out of the terrible dream, the dream of eternity. Mates, I hope you enjoyed all four tales. The first about the doctor who placed power and reputation on a fur coat, and actually he was kind of right in some ways. And in that particular story, I had a couple of questions. Firstly, whether the doctor was actually sick or he was going to kill himself. What happened to his wife immediately after that slip up on her part? And lastly, where is his wife? Yeah, one uniquely strange tale. The second tale involving the blue anchor, oh, that was saddening. It was like pulling out a splinter from your toe. Painful to endure that discord of romance, but the finish of that tale was uniquely bittersweet. The kiss was so cheeky. I think that story is commentary on the thought of love between young lovers. One without experience, whose thoughts are a ball of chaos, and the inner thought of what young desires look like. I also laughed out aloud when the girl commented on the boy's good-looking forehead. That has to be the last aspect of a person that I'd take notice of. I mean, you notice if the forehead of a person is, you know, big. But I don't think to myself like, wow, check out that woman's forehead. It's so well placed, so well crafted, so spherical in nature. It's just so specific that I found it strangely funny. And the dream of eternity, <laughs> that was a strange tale. Almost Alice in Wonderland-ish. In wondering when does reality end and the dream take over. I would argue when he leaves his friends to walk the street, it's at that moment that he falls into slumber. What are your thoughts? That particular tale was a head-scratcher though, but raised some interesting questions of life, death, and a nudge to the curse that immortality would bring to a life, and a life of great age. 
Good food for thought, though, for sure. Now, mates, thanks for listening. If you like what I do and want to help the show reach more legends like you, leave an iTunes review. If you love what I do, visit my Patreon page and support the show directly. And speaking of Patreons, I want to go ahead right now and thank those considerate people. First up is my Ode Night Tea Titan, Queen of the Cats. Thank you so much for supporting me at this amazing level. With your support, I'm pumping podcast Nitro into my audio and specifically targeting audio quality. You'll hear it in this episode, the breath control, the peaks of audio, and the mouth clicks all reduced or cleaned up. And thanks for the heads up on saying Arkansas correctly. I'm going to do my best to nail it here, so it's Arkansas. Did I still butcher it, Maya? Did I still do it? <laughs> Gosh. Let me know, and thank you for being so damn awesome. My white tea warlord, Lizasaurus Rex. Mate, thanks to your support, I have been able to delve deeper into equalizers and learn more about what it is that makes the sound we listen to crisper, clearer, and, well, how to properly master. I've been using a new set of plugins thanks to you, and I'm sure you can hear it in today's episode. And thanks to you, I've not only got this capability, I've been able to implement it straight away. Thanks, man. And you'll be hearing from me this weekend. And Paige Kramer, my next white tea warlord, thank you so much for your epic support. I've been applying your support straight to an online tool called Headliner and trialing out the use of online platforms to create audiograms. Might sound like a bit of mumbo jumbo, but what it basically means is I'm compressing audio bytes and using them to communicate the podcast in a different medium. All in all, it's a great way to reach more lovies like yourself in a different manner. Thank you so much, Paige. You're giving this podcast more opportunities. And like a lightning strike that energizes this podcast's soul, my Earl Grey enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Effeli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Thank you so much for your support, mates. All of you have a special place in this podcast heart and my own. Lucky to have you lot. Seriously. Stick with me Monday for some more Sherlock Holmes, aka Watson Does Silly Things, and Sherlock Gesticulates. And some more horror tales Wednesday and Friday. And as always, mates, till next, we meet.